And the other problem that I see with it is that there are so many so-called gurus, I should say property sales companies masquerading as education companies, who are selling properties to people, sort of using the supposed tax saving as a marketing tool, and the properties that they're selling are just not right for the people that they're selling them to. Hello, it's Bernadette Jansen, and before we get into this episode, I need to remind you that the information in this podcast is general in nature and opinion only. It should not be taken as personal advice. There are significant risks with buying and renovating property, and you should maximize your profit potential and minimize your risk by seeking independent advice that relates to your personal circumstances through your own financial planner, accountant, and any other professionals that you are working with. The examples in this podcast are for illustrative purposes only. You're listening to She Renovates, the podcast for women who want to renovate to create an income and a life they love. Well, hello, it's Bernadette back with another episode of She Renovates. And today we're going to be sharing the She Renovates take on negative gearing. So negative gearing has been in the spotlight recently because the shadow government or the opposition was campaigning to abolish it. But thankfully, that's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. I say thankfully because there are a lot of people with negatively geared properties and Contrary to popular belief, they're not real estate moguls by any stretch of the imagination. They are sort of the battlers. The majority of them are anyhow. And I'll share an infographic in our show notes that was shared by the ABC fact-checking department that gives you a breakdown of the sectors of the community that do have negatively geared properties. Before I get into that, I wanted to just share what's going on in my life in terms of renovating. And so I've got a couple of projects on the go, and one of them is very close to home. So we have the ground floor of our home is a separate dwelling. So over the years have had that rented on long-term rent and short-term rent. We've had children living in it. And when the last child left... We decided to investigate the potential for it in terms of Airbnb, and I discovered that it has the potential of around about 60,000 per annum on Airbnb. So I decided to give it a bit of a makeover because it was looking a bit tired and to get it back onto Airbnb because it forms part of my retirement plan. And so I've been doing a renovation And part of that renovation has been a few weekend projects, which the part of renovating that I absolutely love. So injecting a little bit of personality into the property. Now, it's hard to do this when you're buying, renovating and selling because sometimes personality is polarizes your market. So you want to keep it pretty broad. But in Airbnb, it's perfect because it makes the property talk aboutable. And so... I have created a theme for this particular property 
And because it was once, it was converted, it's a warehouse conversion, it was converted from an old factory into residential, I've decided to call the this particular listing the factory floor. And so I'm going with a bit of a pseudo-industrial theme. So I've got three weekend projects. So the first one was I, I created a bedhead. I shouldn't say I did. It was my idea and my darling husband, Stephen, executed it. And that is made from some upcycled, quite ornate doors. And it also forms a walk-in wardrobe. So you walk around behind and the wardrobe is behind. And so that's installed and we've chalk painted it and we're about to distress it and that, that will be done. The next project was upcycled an old blackboard. So I've got a large framed blackboard and refinished it with blackboard paint. And then had a go, my first attempt at chalkboard art, and it was surprisingly effective. So that's completed. And now on to the third project, which is my signature upcycled industrial chandelier. So that's, I've got all the components assembled. So I had to have a steel fabricated with some holes in it, and I've bought a um, spider light pendant and that forms the basis of the chandelier. So I'll be, incidentally, obviously I don't do DIY electrical. We get our electrician to actually wire it up, but I, I basically assemble it and just bring him in to do the electrical work and install it. And we'll be sharing some photos of these projects over on our Instagram feed in the coming weeks. So watch out for those. The other project that I have going is my Renault in Wynnum, which I'm doing as a joint venture with one of our students, one of our Wonder Women. And that is about 85% done. So it was a splitter block, which we've... um, uh, realigned the boundary and so now we're up to the stage where we're able to register the vacant block as a separate title and in terms of the Renault it's pretty well done we've just got to organize a carport and driveway which requires a little bit of work with our town planner and then we'll be able to complete you know do the last bits of that renovation and get that to market Thankfully, the market is very healthy in that particular suburb. So, yes, so in the next couple of months, we should have a result on that. And of course, when I've completed that, Renault, I've promised our Queensland followers that I'll invite you in to check it out. And yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you. Okay, so now let's get into negative gearing. One thing I'm going to do in this podcast is share an experience that Stephen and I had quite a few years ago where we went very close to making the biggest mistake of our property journey. And thankfully, my due diligence skills saved us. But since then, I have met a lot of people who didn't weren't so lucky. And so that's why I feel this episode is necessary because I think people just don't understand what's going on. And there are a lot of sharks out there who um, will prey on you if you're not quite savvy about this. And it's pretty simple. So firstly, I'm going to talk about the applications for negative gearing, why you would do it. And then I'll share my story. And then I will share why you wouldn't do it. So and I can tell you 
I think there are more reasons to not negative gear than there are to go with it, but I'll get started. So let's get back to basics. So the whole concept of negative gearing, the, the strategy works when you've got ideal conditions. So it's like any strategy, you've got to get all the touch points right. And so it's based on the assumption that property increases exponentially in value over time. So, you know, the the old adage that property doubles every 10 years, it doesn't double every 10 years in every area, but there are some core areas where, you know, historically that's what's happened. So the first thing you need to do if you're planning to go this way is to make sure that you purchase in an area that is hopefully, you can never, there are no guarantees, but, you know, double over a 10-year period. And so the theory is that say you were to, say you own a home in a good suburb, and I I always like to think of good middle-class suburbs, and you buy your neighbor's property or buy a property in the same street or in the same area, an equivalent property, use some equity in your own home to actually purchase it. And then just hold it, you know, rent it out, whatever you do to help you to cover the payments, but then hold it for 10, 20, 30 years. Okay. So over that period of time, the capital growth will diminish the loss that you make in holding it. So over that time, you will find that the rent doesn't cover the payment. So you're going to have to top it up. But in 20 or 30 years time, or even 10 years time, that loss should pale into insignificance. And the negative gearing part of it is that you will be able to claim a tax deduction for the loss that you make against your weekly or monthly salary. And used in the right way, it is very effective. So I just look back on the first home that Stephen and I bought together was, you know, 35 or nearly 35 years ago. And um, we paid about 80000 for it. And now it would have to be worth at least 10 times that. So if we had have bought our neighbours and just sat on that and did nothing else, we would have a very, you know, we would have a property that is worth 10 times what we had paid for it. And the cost of holding it for that period of time would be probably insignificant. So the other scenario where I think negative gearing works is when you are buying a property that has a higher and better use. So you might buy a, a house on a large block that in the future you could develop. So you'll probably pay significantly more for the house than if it was on a standard block. But the potential for profit when you do develop it, once again, makes the loss that you've made on, on the way pale in, into insignificance. So there are two scenarios where negative gearing does, you know, all things being equal, work. So if it's a, um, a strategy that you're interested in, the person to follow would be Chris Gray. So he is the king of negative gearing. He's built a, I don't know, $16 million portfolio based on negative gearing. And um, and so he would be the person to follow. So the problem with with it is that that it's used indiscriminately, and a lot of people 
buy negatively geared properties because, you know, they think they're going to get all the tax back that they pay. And the reality is that you you have to make a loss to negatively gear. And depending on your tax bracket, you know, the amount you get back varies. So even if you're in the highest tax bracket, you know, 46 cents in the dollar, you'll get the 46 cents of what you've paid in loss back, but you've still got to pay the other 54 cents. Now that's reduced um, certainly in the early years quite significantly by depreciation in the first five years. But the reality is you are still losing money. I heard it said somewhere that negatively gearing is or negative gearing is a socially acceptable way of saying that, you know, I'm losing money. And it's absolutely true. You are still losing money. So there has to be a bigger end game to make negative gearing worthwhile. And the other problem that I see with it is that there are so many so-called gurus, education companies, I should say property sales companies masquerading as education companies who are selling properties to people sort of using the supposed tax saving as a marketing tool and the properties that they're selling are just not right for the people that they're selling them to. And as I said, I was going to give you an example of this, and I will in a minute, but a lot of these companies are selling off-the-plan units and house and land packages, and there is a huge issue with those because for two reasons. One, there is an endless supply of them because, you know, the developers can just go on punching out more house and lands and more units. And the second reason is because they have astronomical commissions. So hence the reason why these so-called gurus are, are quite keen to sell them because they're lining their pockets at an incredible rate. And yeah, it just, they will do this under the guise of looking after your interests, but I can tell you it is not your interests that they're looking after, which brings me to the story that I was going to tell you. So some years ago, Stephen and I sold a property and we wanted to reinvest the money in different states and do it quite quickly because at the time we were very time poor. Stephen was working really long hours and I was running a business And so we were looking for someone who could help us with that. And we came across a company who was promoted by one of my mentors and and someone that I really respect. And so we had a meeting with them and they recommended that we buy eight properties, house and land. And at this stage, we hadn't formed a view on negative gearing. In fact, it wasn't promoted to us as negative gearing at the time, but we knew it was. And I just thought that's ridiculous. There's no way we're buying eight properties from a an untested sort of advisor with an untested strategy. It's just not happening. So we said to them, we will look at four and make a decision about whether we're going to buy any or all of them. So we were invited back to their office for a second meeting, which we did, and were presented with four contracts. Incidentally, those contracts, each of them was like, you know, a copy of War and Peace. They were massive. And we had decided that we wanted to use our own legal representation because they are a one-stop shop. They covered everything. We didn't want that because I just think that that creates extra risk. You need some checks and balances. 
And also that we would go and do our own due diligence, despite the fact that they reassured us that their due diligence was second to none and that they were working, they were looking after our interests. And then they said that you probably should sign the contracts now, but we won't execute them until you give us the okay. Now, something happened inside that office because there is no way in a month of Sundays that we would ever sign a contract that we had not read. But for some reason, we thought that was an okay idea. And it was true. It was, it's, it was hard for us to get in there together. And that was the reasoning that they gave. But even so, it still to this day amazes me that we did that. But we did. And so we went away. And then when I got home, I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, that was crazy. And so I rang them and said, I want to remind you that you are not to execute those contracts until we've given you the say-so. And also, you need to email them to us so we can read them ourselves and so then we can send them to our own solicitor to have them reviewed. So a few days after that, I jumped on a plane and went to Melbourne. So there was one in Victoria, one in Western Australia, one in Queensland and one in northern New South Wales. And so I went to Melbourne to look at the first property. And when I got there, it was pretty much just a paddock. So they'd started to make roads, but it was like very, very early stages. And when I looked around the suburb, I realised that for the money that they were asking us to spend, we could. there were much better buys there and it just wasn't a good deal. So that evening I rang Stephen and said, it's not a goer, it's not a good deal. And he said, oh, well, the first contract has arrived and it's been executed. So they, they basically were trying to railroad us into buying these properties, $2 million worth of property. And so I was slightly panicked at that stage. And so what we did was we wrote a cooling off letter and sent it via registered mail to their solicitor to make sure it got there on time. Keep in mind, we still hadn't received the email version of the online version of the contract. And over the next few days, the same thing happened with the other three contracts. So they all turned up. They had all been executed. And we were at that point in a conditional contract, but had we not acted to cool off, we would have ended up in an unconditional contract, which was a very undesirable situation to be in when you didn't, we didn't want the properties. So of course, you know, they had just crossed the line incredibly, but, you know, we were reluctant to cool off because when you cool off, it means you lose your holding deposit. However, I was able to campaign to get that returned because clearly there was some deal between them and the developer. But they argued with us for weeks and weeks trying to get us to not withdraw from the arrangement. But eventually we did and recovered the deposits. And then shortly after that, I got a letter from the solicitor with a bill for each of the contracts that they had executed. And I rang the company and said, you know, we had explicitly said that we wanted to use our own legal representation. And they said to us, you remember that contract that you signed that day? In it, you gave us permission to use our solicitor. So there you go. 
I figured that we had um, – that was a very cheap lesson to learn because the alternative was unthinkable. We could have been in the – you know, in – unconditional contracts with, you know, $2 million worth of property. So uh, it was a lucky escape. But since then, I have met people that were duped by this same company and now own property in those same developments that we were offered deals, and they are still not worth what they paid. So what I think is wrong with these scenarios is firstly, most people that go into them have no idea what they're doing and they're relying on these sharks to advise them and it's just doesn't work. So some of the issues with these particular deals are these properties are in very young developments. So the development hasn't matured And so it takes them a long time to get up to speed and to start growing in value. So if you're in your 20s or even 30s and you buy a property like that, it's fine because almost any property over 30 years will double, triple or even quadruple in value. But if you are in your 50s and you're looking at buying a house and land, you just do not have the time for it to appreciate sufficiently to make a difference to your financial future. In fact, it's going to be a noose around your neck for at least a decade. The second problem that I see with them is that they're overpriced to the tune of the fat commissions. So not only do you have to recover from the fact that they're young, you also have to recover from the fact that they're overpriced. I know this for a fact. We actually, in our community, we have a um, a buyer's agent who, or real estate agent who has actually shared with me the actual figures that they pay people who sell their properties. So the developers pay and they are, you know, anything from 30000 to sixty or $70,000 for one quite modest property. So you can see why these companies are eager to sell them because, you know, particularly that company that we were dealing with, had we bought those properties, they would have made, you know, almost 200000 up front. So it's the greed factor that kicks in and unsuspecting prey, their clients really are up against it. Okay, so now I want to put together some dot points to provide you with some clarity on this topic. So negative gearing, like anything else, requires ideal conditions to be profitable. And firstly, you need to buy in an area that has significant potential for growth. And so generally that means a good suburb in a capital city. The second thing is you'll need to be willing to hold it from minimum 10 years, preferably 30 years. And you also need to have a decent income so that you can cover the shortfall. Like negative gearing is actually where you get a tax refund on the loss that you've made on the holding costs of that property. But like say if you're on a 37% tax rate, you're still going to have to cover another 63% of loss. So it's quite a lot of money to cover. The other thing to know about negative gearing is that there have been changes to the law flagged. The Labor government's very keen on changing that law. 
so it's something that may change in the future thankfully not for this period of office now since we've just had an election and it's not something that you would take on late in your life cycle so if you're in your late 50s buying a negatively geared property which is what a lot of people do is crazy because you're not going to be working for long enough to be able to hold the property and carry the loss for that property to be able to grow. So the other thing that I mentioned is that if you're going for a negatively geared property, be very wary of house and land packages They and also units off the plan. They are generally overpriced because they have very large commissions built into them. This also kicks, brings in the greed factor. So the people selling these properties, obviously there's no end of supply and the commissions are significant. So there's definitely reason for them to be quite aggressive about selling them. The other thing is, particularly with house and land packages, they're often properties that are really young in their life cycle. So it takes a long time for them to get established before they start growing in value. Yet, So you're behind the eight ball for quite a few years before you can start seeing any movement. Second last is if a company is providing education and sourcing the property for you, there's a problem. Okay, There needs to be some separation of those elements of your property journey. Also, one-stop shops, same deal, where the legal, the broking, sourcing of the property are all intertwined. That's not a good situation. You need checks and balances. You need some separation between those elements of purchasing a property. And like I think a lot of us, and this was certainly a mistake I made, I thought I didn't have the time to figure this out for myself. But seriously, you really do need to, it doesn't mean you need to do everything yourself, you need to get a bit savvy about it because otherwise you are a sitting duck for unscrupulous operators. So on that note, I'm going to finish off and say thank you for listening. If you have had a similar experience or a negative experience with negative gearing, unfortunately two negatives don't make a positive, come over to the She Renovates Facebook group, the free Facebook group, because I really think that we need to get this out there so not so many people get trapped in their web. And also, if you could take some time to write a review, go over to iTunes and write a review for us, I would be very grateful. And if you do happen to write a review, take a snapshot of it, send it to me, Bernadette at the School of Renovating, And I will provide you with a free copy of The Secrets of Property Millionaires Exposed. So this is a book that I contributed to recently. But in it, there are quite a few property experts with various strategies and including Chris Gray that I mentioned earlier in this podcast. So that if you are interested in negative gearing, you can get his take on it. And basically, you just need to pay the postage and you can have that book for free. It's valued at $29.99. And that will be my thank you gift to you for taking the time to write a review. So on that note, I will sign off and I'll see you next week. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com.